Hey, turn to Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 1. Uh, we're talking about the character of unity. Maybe I'll just read those opening verses to set the table for us. This section is so practical that I didn't want to skip over it in any way, but Paul said in 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's bow in a word of prayer and ask Him to bless this word. Father, thank You that Your word doesn't go out void. Father, the words are much more powerful than I could ever communicate in my humanness. And there's so many, I'm thinking, issues that pervade all of us with people that that would be beyond the scope of even my understanding. And so I would beg for the presence of the Holy Spirit to anoint this word, Father, that I would teach, as it were, the living oracles of God. Father, do a work in each heart, and to do that work, I'm praying that the Spirit would open eyes, some who I'm sure beyond my understanding need to be able to put this into practice and they need to start today. So God, would you be our teacher that we might be your people, Father, and that we might walk in a manner worthy. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. He tells us there, and he really gives a command there in that sense, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. He says there in Ephesians 4.1, therefore. And obviously, therefore looks back at chapters 1 through 3. And so we said a couple weeks ago that therefore is transitional. He's really moving us from our great privilege and blessing in 1.3 to our practice on how we live that out. He's moving us from the doctrine that he lays down, as he does almost in each of his epistles, to the duty that is before us. That's his heartbeat. In other words, Paul is saying, I want you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. I want you to live out in practice who you are in your high position. And really, all of that is to walk worthy. Years ago, a person observed a friend smoking one cigarette after another. We used to call that a chain smoker. He was smoking, as this friend observed, a brand whose motto was, quote, they satisfy. And his question to the smoker was, how many does it take? Uh, the smoker obviously was living proof that the product was a sham. I mean, evidently they don't satisfy or you would have one and be content, but he kept lighting up one after another. I think likewise, sometimes believers are often the church's worst advertisement because their life doesn't match their profession. Their conduct, if you will, doesn't match their creed. And so unity is of utmost importance from 4, 1 through 16. And we made the connection that God is glorified, 321, when the church is unified. And we made uh, two weeks ago our emphasis there that the indicative always precedes the imperative. The position, if you will, in Christ always precedes the practice. The indicative, that's a grammar term, is really our position in Christ, who we are, what God has done for us. Um, it's our identity. The imperatives in Paul's epistle follow, and if you're new here, that's where we are. We're in chapter 4, we're in the exhortation. Some of you have said, wow, the last couple of weeks, Scott, Scott you've really been focused on on." putting this into practice, and I would probably say, well, that's probably what it should have been like. 
One through three, we're building indicative after indicative of what Christ has done, creating the platform. But once you get to chapter four through six, he's going to give imperative. You remember I said there's only one imperative in chapters one through three. But in chapters four through six, there's over 40 commands that are given. And now what Paul does here is put forth a series of compelling arguments that build after his theme on unity in the church. And we begin with the call to unity, as I've expressed, to walk in a manner worthy. Paul told us to walk by daily conduct uh, worthy. And the idea of worthy was to balance the scales. It was to give weight equal distribution on a, on a scale, if you will. In other words, the emphasis there was your position ought to be balanced with your practice. And it's not only stated there in 4.1 to walk worthy, but Paul told the church at Thessalonica, he said, I charge you to walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. In other words, you can't just profess Christ. You have to live Christ is the thought. Walk worthy. Paul told the church at Philippi in 127, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, it's not enough to express Christ. Your life ought to be worthy of the gospel who called you. In fact, Paul said to the church at Colossae, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. What does that mean, Scott? To fully please him, to bear fruit in every good work. And so here is this call here to unity in the church to walk worthy. In fact, when we think of that word call, maybe this is why the writer of Hebrews said that we share a heavenly calling in chapter 3.1. In other words, if you've been called by God, you share a heavenly calling. Who can say that? What a great privilege. Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.9 that he called us to a holy calling. And so it's a heavenly calling. It's a holy calling. And the calling is to walk worthy. You say, well, Scott, can you tell me how? And my answer would be yes. That worthy walk is accompanied by five graces that reveal the character of a worthy walk. And so we describe that as the character of unity in the church, and there's five graces. We've touched on the first two. I want to finish those last three this morning. And you are called to activate these graces that God might be glorified and the church might be unified. The first grace was humility. We looked at that last week. It's to have a Low view of yourself. To esteem others is more important. Paul began not with power, not with buildings, not with great programs, not with, you know, worship that is magnificently stunning, whatever that means. He began with a heart quality, and all of these are attitudes, and he began with humility. Secondly, he described gentleness. Proutes is the word. Sometimes gentleness is meekness. And I really thought, as we looked back at those, that humility and gentleness go together. You say, well, how so? Well, the humble person thinks so low of himself that his response in kind towards other people is gentle, is the thought. He's gentle. She's gentle with others. Gentleness, we said, is a freedom from resentment of freedom from bitterness. Gentleness is power under control. You have power, but you don't exercise that power. It's under control, and so you're not revengeful or bitter, and you're not uh, resenting other people. Now, I draw you here to three, four, and five today, okay? The third character of grace, look at it there in four, two. He says, with all humility and gentleness, we'll, we'll look here just for a moment at grace. And then it says, with patience. Patience. You're called to be patient. You say, what does it mean to be patient? Well, obviously, these words 
means something. Sometimes this phrase used to be translated in another translation as long, what? Suffering. Maybe you've heard it. The, the Greek term here for patience is macro thumia. Okay? It's what we call a compound word. It's not too hard to understand, and you don't have to know Greek. Macro in Greek is the opposite of micro. So if micro is short and small, macro, the first part of that word, is long, if you will. It's not short, it's long, it's big, if you will. And then thumia is the Greek word for anger, okay? It's the Greek word for anger. And so here, it just means that someone is long-suffering. In fact, what's really interesting about that word in the Hebrew uh, without exaggeration, the word meant to be long in nostrils <laughs> is what the word kind of had its etymology in in the Hebrew, to be long in nostrils. You say, why is that? Because sometimes anger would be vented. You know, sometimes we say of a young man or a young teenager, they are fuming mad. Well, patience is the opposite of anger. Patience means not that you get angry, but that you are very long-fused, if you will. You think of the person who is fuming mad. Patience describes one who is slow to anger and someone with a long fuse. Obviously, it's opposite. is a short fuse. That man, that woman, maybe that teenager who would blow up in a range in a rage. So here, how can I understand this term patience? Patience really is a corrective to anger. Um, and obviously, this is crucial to your home, crucial to our church, crucial to your relationships in the community. If God's going to be glorified, then you've got to walk worthy. And if you're going to walk worthy in balance, then you have to be a man or woman who is long-fused, if you will. You have to be patient. Now, obviously, patience is a corrective grace to anger. We're going to need that because look at 426. Here, he says, be angry. And of course, that's a righteous angry. And it's righteous ang anger. And he says, and do not sin in 426. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't let it go down. Don't let the day go by, if you will, if you've blown your stack, if you've flown off the handle, if you gave somebody an angry look because patience finds its opposite, if you will, in anger. Look at 431. He says this, and he'll go on to say this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. But he's going to tell us, don't let the sin go down on your anger, the sun, excuse me. And then he tells us here to uh, let anger be put away from your character. Look at chapter 6. In verse 4, there's another word for anger there. Fathers, do not, it's a play on words, provoke your children to what? Anger. Fathers, you cannot anger your children to anger. It's the, here, it's the, the root of that word. They're both from anger. So that's what the word means. You say, well, how could I see uh, what is patience then? We're exhorted to be patient, but let me give you three descriptions of patience. First, I think you and I both understand that God is patient. When you think of the character of God, the person of God, the character of God, he is patient. In fact, we looked at it a couple weeks ago in Exodus chapter 34 when Moses was put in the cleft of the rock and his glory passed by and there... The Lord proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and, the Bible says, 
slow to anger. There's our word. God himself is patient. God himself and his attributes is slow to anger. In fact, in the book of Jonah, when we exposited through that, Jonah prayed after the people repented. Oh, Lord, the people repented of Nineveh. Is this not what I said when I was in my own country? Is this not why I fled to Tarshish? For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger. So when you think about patience, when you think about somebody's long fuse, just think about the character of God. He is patient. He's not willing that any should perish, is the thought in 2 Peter chapter 3. So patience is an attribute of God. Secondly, patience is trusting God in the midst of a trial. In other words, God may have you in the midst of a trial, and you're going to show your faith by your patience to trust God's word in the midst of that trial. Let me give you an example of that. It spoke of the suffering and the patience of the prophets in James chapter 5, verse 10. It said there that that scripture is an example of suffering, and then there's our word, patience, macrothumia. Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. The prophets, beloved, suffered patiently in this sense that they continued to speak in the name of the Lord. They were put in difficult circumstances, put in difficult trials, and rather than suffering anger because of the lack of response, it said they suffered and they were patient. Just think of Jeremiah just for, the se- for a second. The weeping, what? Prophet. He kept telling Israel what God wanted and they continued to disobey. And here's what Jeremiah experienced. He experienced death threats in Jeremiah chapter 11. He experienced in Jeremiah 15, isolation. We know that Jeremiah the prophet in chapter 19 was put in stocks. We know that Jeremiah in chapter 26 was arrested. We know that Jeremiah in chapter 36 was almost destroyed. We know that Jeremiah experienced violence, that he experienced imprisonment in chapter 37, that in chapter 40 he faced starvation, that in chapter 40 he was placed in chains, that he suffered rejection in 42. I mean, you talk about patience, that's macrothemia. He kept speaking of the name of the Lord. He suffered, if you will, patiently. In fact, think of other prophets like Ezekiel who endured the death of his wife in Exodus chapter 24. God allowed his wife to be taken so that it might be an example to Israel. In fact, after she died, he was exhorted not to remorse her death. In other words, he used that in his sovereignty to give a demonstration to Israel. That's suffering patiently, okay? In fact, I think of uh, uh, Daniel who was thrown into the lion's den. Why? Simply because he was faithful. These prophets suffered patiently. They were slow to anger. Isaiah himself He remember when he saw the great vision of God in chapter 6 when the threshold of the temple began to shake and the angels and the seraphim crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy. And finally God said, who will go? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. And you say, well, he sent him and his ministry boomed. No, it's just the opposite. He said, you will go to a people that have a hard heart. You will go to a people that won't listen to you. You will go to a people that won't obey the truth, and I want you to keep preaching it. So here's something of what patience means biblically. It's a character of God that he's slow to anger, and it's used often when his scripture comes with a command and people are patiently enduring under it. So Isaiah, you know, at the end of his life, I don't know if I said, at least according to church history, he was sawn in two. 
It's not in a chapter and a verse, but that's what church history says. You don't need a movie like Braveheart behind cameras and all the CAD work that they're doing to make that come out. Isaiah was sawn in two. Now, the reason I brought that up is because some of you are thinking, my situation is difficult. This person is difficult. Scott, if you really knew this person, well, listen, when you suffer patiently, you're acting like God, and secondly, you're obeying his scripture. In fact, Hosea dealt with a heartbreaking marriage in Hosea chapter 1. The apostles, if it extends beyond the prophets, but the apostles were all killed except who? John. Paul himself, as we open this, as he's a prisoner of the Lord, had his head severed on the Ignatian way. All of these apostles, all of these prophets suffered. In fact, James, church history tells us, was thrown to his death from the pinnacle of the temple. He's the one who wrote James 5.10. All these, says in 5.10, spoke in the name of the Lord. In fact, I could extend it in Hebrews chapter 11. There the writer says, For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and all the prophets who faith, conquered through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, And then it says, of all these heroes of faith, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that in the midst, so that they may rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, Hebrews 11, and flogging, and chains, and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. So here's the prophets. They suffered obeying the command of the Lord. And when you obey that command, you are being patient. They suffered much. They were persecuted greatly. They endured, if you will, courageously. Should we not be patient in our small burdens? And I think the answer would be yes. Well, what does patience look like? Well, the prophets kept speaking in the name of the Lord. You say, well, Scott, what's the point? And you're done with some people. They just kept going. And you've just maybe, maybe have written somebody off and you're no longer patient because they exceeded your limit. Not these prophets. They spoke in the name of the Lord. So first, it's an attribute of God. Secondly, a man or woman who's patient Trust in his promises in the midst of trial. But thirdly, and I want to zero in on this, predominantly patience is a characteristic in relationships with people, okay? With people. That's really the focus of here, Ephesians. And here is where unity needs to be fought. Next week, we'll look at There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's a confession there. But unity's got to be fought at the relational level. Patience describes one who is, let's just come back to it, slow to anger, and it describes a person with a very long fuse. In other words, the exhortation is to you and to me that you, you you have to have a long fuse. You can't have a short fuse. You can't blow up in a rage. You can't just say, I'm done with them. Patience, as I mentioned, is a corrective to anger. Can you get a little closer than that? Yes, I can. Patience, beloved, is the ability to be wronged and wronged again and have the power to retaliate 
and never think about it. I mean, we just live in an age of <laughs> retaliation. If you did something wrong, then he's going to take care of it. It's basically half the Hollywood action movies are built off some kind of revenge that someone is taking because of what somebody did against them, most illustrated in Johnny Rambo, okay? You do him in, you do him wrong, you say something wrong, well, Johnny's going to take care of it. But here, biblically, okay, Patience is the ability to be wronged and wronged again and have the power to retaliate and you never think about it because you're patient, you're long-fused. Patience is a long fuse in response to people who provoke you. Does this describe you? Patience describes a person in his home, her home, that doesn't get angry. Patience endures frustration without retaliation, without resentment, without bitterness. Is that you? Patience, what it does, seeks to deal with the person in a way that heals the relationship rather than exacerbates the relationship. I mean, some people just provoke you. But a patient man, a patient woman, is actually going to work towards healing rather than exasperation, if you will. Patience, beloved, seeks the ultimate good of another rather than the immediate satisfaction of our own emotions. People say today, they like to say, boy, that guy really gave that guy a piece of his mind. Really? The world can do that, but we can't do that. Sometimes we say, boy, that woman really told her off. Really? Or, or in your spirit, see, what's Paul getting at? Listen, he's going to do this. If you want God to be glorified, our church needs to be unified. And our church is going to be unified when you and I manifest humility, gentleness, and now patience. You say, can I, let me see it a little clearer. Okay, Stephen in the book of Acts was a man of patience. As he was being stoned to death, I didn't catch him quoting the imprecatory psalms. I heard him saying, Lord, do not hold this sin, what? Against them. I mean, as he's being buried under boulders that are being thrown, rather than praying imprecatory psalms, he says, "Ah, Lord, don't hold this against them. No animosity, no bitterness. He didn't say, listen, you're going to get it at the second coming. He's praying for those who are bringing on his death. Of course, if I say that, the ultimate example of patience was the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh on the cross. And before he got to the cross, they're mocking him. They're hurling abuse at him. They're spitting on him. They're hit punching him in the face. They're laughing at him. I mean, just think about being spit upon. I mean, we see that sometimes in athletics. This guy spit upon person. this person. Nah, we think, oh boy, that's foul. But imagine spitting into the face of your maker. Imagine spitting into the face of the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. Imagine spitting into the face and mocking the very one who gave you a beating heart. And yet on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're, what? Doing. This is the quality of patience. Listen, beloved, I would have to tell you this. I was thinking about this this morning. I know more men out of the ministry, not because of impurity, but because of an uncontrolled desire to rule. I've watched in the last 10 years guys dropping right and left, not because of some sexual immorality, but because they couldn't keep their vision under control with the people of God. In fact, it says right here on the pulpit, you can't see it. It's etched into this pulpit. It says, preach the word. Paul told Timothy this. Be ready in season. I'm reading it. And exhort. And it says, be ready in season and out. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And then it has three dots like the the scripture continues. And I know it continues. Because if you kept reading, it would say reprove rebuke and exhort and I think pastors can sometimes reprove rebuke and exhort 
But the, the scripture goes on to say, with great patience and instruction. One of the most important qualities of an elder is that he does not blow his stack. He does not lose his temper. It's not easy. I mean, we got some big boy uh, leaders in our church, and it's a lot different when you're leading a business compared to leading a church, and there's 11 guys sitting in there. There needs to be this spirit, and no wonder Paul says, listen, Timothy, as you conduct your pastoral ministry, and as people don't listen, and sometimes they don't obey, reprove, yes, rebuke, exhort, but Timothy, do it with great macrothumia and instruction. In fact, I'm reminded that Paul told Timothy this in 2 Timothy 3.10. He told him there, he said, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my sin, or excuse me, he said my conduct, and then he said my aim in life, and then he said you followed my patience, my patience. <laughs> Sometimes you might think, when you think of John MacArthur as this guy thundering out truth in the pulpit, the guy who's afraid of nothing, and that would be true on both accounts, but as I've been around him for basically 50 years, I've never seen him angry. I've never seen him fly off the handle. I've never seen him tell the whole elder board, this is what we're going to do. It's funny, sometimes I'll read about things that people think like he just controls that elder board. They don't even know what they're talking because I sat at that table for many years and I've never seen him angry one time. And Paul's going to tell Timothy, listen, reprove, rebuke, exhort, but do so with great patience and instruction. And Paul modeled this for Timothy when he said, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, and you followed my patience. Paul demonstrated that. And I'm so thankful for men who lived that out before me. In fact, it was MacArthur who told me that the greatest weakness of a young man, of a young leader, is a lack of what? Patience. And if you're not careful, this is going to get in the way, not only of our church, not only the way of our leadership, and I'm so thankful for our elders. Would you pray that that would continue? I want our church to be unified, but elders got to model this, don't they? Humility, gentleness, patience. I just pray that nothing gets in our way. And so far, what a blessing it's been. Laughter is probably the most familiar sound at our elder meeting outside of people praying Pray that that continues. But listen, you as believers, in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, he would say, I urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. But then it says there, be patient. What does it say? Do you sometimes ever wish, why did he have to add that one on? You got somebody, and he's talking to you. He's not talking to me. He's, he's talking to the brothers, which is all of us. It's not just for leaders. He says, admonish the one who's idle. You do admonish the one who's out of step. You do take the one who's faint-hearted, and you do encourage them. You pick them up. You got some brothers and sisters who are weak, and you actually need to help them and prop them up. But then beyond all, you need to be patient with them all. You need to be long-suffering. So listen, I, I love this church so much. You've got to be patient with people in this body, okay? That's the thought here. You've got to be long-suffering with them. You may be a teacher. You need to be patient with your students. You may be a coach. Where's that fine line between directing them but ever being so patient with them? Okay, you may be a business leader as a man or a woman and you're directing those people who are under you and you need to direct and you need to remind of the vision but you need to be very, 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 very careful how you handle people and I don't need an HR office to tell me that. It's in the word of God. So listen, I'm just telling you, uh, we've got to be patient with people. Some of you lead many people. Some of you lead 10, some of you lead 100, some of you lead 1,000, some of you lead multiple thousands. 
And and walking this fine line in the fruit of the Spirit, though, is that you're going to be long-suffering with people. Now, that doesn't mean there's not a standard, but it does mean you have to be very careful. In fact, I remember one time, maybe I've told you this before, I was a young father and I had a, a bunch of kids, and I would always tell the kids after they drove their big wheels into the garage that they needed to make sure that all of their big wheels weren't in line of the little laser that went across so that when the garage door came down in the snow, it wouldn't come down and it goes back up. So one Sunday, I'm sure I was about ready to preach, we all ran out the door. I hit the, might have been Sunday night, I hit the garage door opener and I saw it go down and sure enough, there was a big wheel that caught it, and it hit it, you know, and it went back up, and I was in a hurry. You know, I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be preaching, right? And I got out of the van. All nine of us were in there, I believe. I got out of the van. I went over to the big wheel. I took the big wheel, and kind of like the Hulk, I just went like this, and I threw it all the way into the back of the garage, somewhat like ticked off, and uh And so I got back into the car, and I recognized there was no one talking in the car. And I recognized, were they still in the car? So I looked in the rearview mirror, and I saw eight separate pair of eyes like this. (laughs) They couldn't believe it, because that momentary little thing. You say, oh, Scott, that's a little thing. Well, isn't that what it costs us sometimes, dads? Sometimes it's the little tiny things that could bother us. Listen, I'm telling you, this, we need to be able to be patient with one another. Does patience describe you? Let me put it this way, very bluntly to you. Patience bears insult. It bears unfair treatment. It bears slander. It bears, if you will, and puts up with criticism. Listen, in a world that wants instant gratification, the character that would drive this church, okay, in the bloodstream, if you will, is humility, gentleness, and patience. In fact, Paul said in Colossians 3 to put on a heart of patience. In other words, he said to wear it. Galatians 5 says that one of the fruits of the Spirit, can you quote it with me, is love, joy, peace, what? Patience. When you're under the control of the Spirit of God, you'll be patient with people. Now listen, this is not always easy, but when you're walking in the Spirit, it's going to happen. And can you imagine if there's no broken relationships here? That you're going to walk into this place and it's all taken care of and you've made any conversation take place and you're long fused towards people who provoke you? In fact, it says, if you, you don't have to turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you can quote it with me, the love chapter, right? And really, it's about love in the body of Christ between 12, chapter 12, 13, and 14. And the first thing he says is that love is what? Patient. Love is patient. The year was 1871. His name was H.M. Stanley, and he was a reporter, and they sent him to Africa to report on this missionary by the name of David Livingston. I hope you know that name. I hope your kids know that name. He was a tremendous missionary, and they sent Stanley to spend several months in the missionary's company carefully observing the man and his work. And Livingston never spoke to Stanley, interestingly, about spiritual matters, but Livingston's loving and patient compassion for the African people was beyond Stanley's comprehension. He could not understand why this guy, David Livingston, why this guy could just put up and love and be patient with what was described back then as a backward pagan people among whom he had so long ministered. 
Livingstone spent himself in untiring service for those whom he had no reason to love except for Christ's love. You say, well, how did it finish? Well, I could read you what Stanley wrote in his journal about David Livingstone, who never spoke a word to him on spiritual matters. Here's what H.M. Stanley said. When I saw his unwearied patience, his unflagging zeal, he said, I became a Christian at his side, though he never spoke one word to me. Amazing. He just watched him. And he said, I, I, I got converted just watching this quality. So humility and gentleness and patience leads to unity. But there's a fourth grace. Maybe that's too convicting. Let's continue to move on. Um, though you probably wouldn't, if you knew what I was going to say, maybe not. It says there, with patience, and then in 4.2, bearing with one another in love. Now let me, let me say this. I think these are all linked together. But here, bearing with one another in love is an expression of patience. You say, what does that mean? Sometimes it's, it's said tolerating one another in love. Here we have bearing with one another in love. To bear with, to tolerate, literally means to hold up. It means to put up with someone. That's the most basic definition. Whether it's a believer or it's an unbeliever, doesn't matter, right? You're going to have to bear with one another in love. That would be with people who are unjust, people who are unkind, people who are unwise, people who are arrogant, people who are lazy, people who are rude, people who are controlling, people who are obnoxious, people who are judgmental, people who are temperamental, people who are greedy, people who are self-controlled, people who are clueless, people who are ignorant, people who, people who live at an emotional level. You are to put up with. Now listen, I, I'm not saying, let me be balanced, from the text, you're to excuse sin because it says down in Ephesians chapter 4, it says to speak the truth in what? Love, okay? Not saying you excuse sin and just put up with sin if it needs to be gently confronted. But here, the thought would be that you're bearing with another you're making, and I know this will bug some of you, okay? It will bother you, what I'm going to say. It means that you'll bear with one another's faults, with their weaknesses, with their shortcomings. And again, the ideal is to put up with someone. You're bearing with another their immaturities. Not so much their sin, but their quirks. And they're false, if you will. That's what it means. And I know some of you are going to struggle with that because you're a truth bearer. Well, if that's true, then just take a, a permanent marker and cross out bearing with one another. Because it does say that. It does say that you're going to have to live with people's immaturities and faults and weaknesses and bear with them and put up with some as they grow under the word of God and the spirit of God. Listen, beloved, every day, every single day, every day, God shows this quality with us, yet how easily we are tempted to be impatient and not bear with another's weaknesses. Now, let me share what bearing with another doesn't mean, okay? What, you say, what does it not mean? Well, I can give you an example from my own life. I was driving my car. Patty, I think we were on a date, weren't we? And I was in the, the, the there's two lanes. Here's the middle lane, okay? I was in the one just on the left side of the middle lane. And then there was a guy on the right lane. And I had this really sweet 
blue 68 Mustang. And as we were driving and talking, this guy from the right lane pulled right in front of me. And I hit him. I'm like, what's he doing, Patty? You know, what's he, pulled, he just, he's pulling a U and he pulled right in front of me and I ran into him. So we exchanged numbers and about three weeks later, I found out, hey, um, I'm not getting anywhere with this guy's insurance company. Long story short, he lied. He was absolutely bold-faced lying that I hit him. I don't know how he was going to say that. I'm like, well, that's just a lie. So listen, bearing with one another wasn't going to allow me to take the money that I had earned and worked hard for and to overlook his line. So I took the means possible and I went to small claims court and he had another friend in the car and the other guy never showed up and Patty was right next to me and the judge obviously awarded me the victory in that small thing. My point is, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to take the means. If somebody was bold-faced lying, I thought I'm a steward of what God has entrusted to me. That's what it doesn't mean. But I can tell you what bearing with another does mean, okay? There was a guy, I'll illustrate it, who was one of the godliest men that I ever knew. His name was Fred Barshaw. He was a principal over the L.A. Unified School System back probably in the 80s and 90s. And he wasn't just a principal at the L.A. Unified School District. He was over every single principal in the whole Los Angeles County. And yet he was one of the most gentle, one of the most patient guys. And I remember sometimes I'd be sitting alongside him as a, as a, as a new pastor, and he would be telling the couple, listen, you two need a very important quality in your marriage. And I'd be like, okay, what's, what's going to come out of Fred's mouth? He said, what you need in your marriage is this quality, ambivalence. He said that every married couple needs ambivalence, and somehow we got distracted. So as a young man, I had to go back to his office later, and I said, Fred, what does ambivalence mean? And he said, Scott, every marriage is going to need ambivalence. I said, what is ambivalence, Fred? He said, ambivalence is the ability to minimize your partner's strength, okay, or minimize their weakness, excuse me, and maximize their strength. You hide a weakness or an immaturity or a fault or a quirk, and you maximize who they are. And I'll tell you, being married for a number of years and being in counseling, how true is that? Because watch this, if you don't minimize another person's weakness and maximize their strength, I think we could be at each other's throats, don't you? So when you come into this body, listen, I'm not telling you to not go to someone who's in sin, but I am telling you that we're going to need to bear with one another at times when another person's immaturity or quirks or faults You say, okay, Scott, I'll just put up with it then. No, sorry, look at the text. It says there, bearing with one another in what? Love. You say, what kind of love is that? You'd probably guess it's agape love. It's a love that is utterly selfless. I mean, just let that... Sneak in. You, you might even be so prideful this morning that you're thinking, hey, Scott, listen, we got to defend the truth. We've got to confront sin. I'd agree. But you could defend the truth and confront every type of sin, which some of it isn't sin, some of it's immaturity, and you can create a home where there's no love. You could create a perfectionistic home that's all externals. So he says here, you need to bear with one another, but you need to do it in a spirit of love. What is that? It's agape love. It's a love that is selfless. It's a love that always seeks the highest good of others. This kind of love is the absence of self. It doesn't retaliate. It doesn't get revenge. It bears with another. It puts up with another in love. I think it's interesting, and you know this, in 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of what? Sins. Be above all, he says. Listen, love, beloved, 
let me just make sure I say this to you, is never passive. So some of you might be thinking, yeah, we're at peace right now. And I'm telling you, you might be passive. It's because you've never sought to love them or to put up with them and bear with them. Love is profoundly active. Love is patient. And let me say this. It's always unconditional. You say, but, but they, but, but they did. Uh, uh. It's, it's not passive. It's active and it's unconditional. In fact, it says this in Colossians 3.13. Bearing with one another. We have it there. That's our word, bearing. That's an echo. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Let me me just stop there just for a second. If there's unforgiveness in our body, God's glory is going to be robbed. You say, but but Scott, what can I do? You need to keep praying. You need to bear with one another, put up with them, pray for them. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. But you know what? The verse got cut off. It's not cut off. It's the next verse. You know what it says? In 3.14, it says this, above all, put on love. That's right after the word forgive. Above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It says, does Paul, in fact, would you go there? Turn back a couple pages in Galatians 5, 14. You know this as, as you should, but just it's, it's a couple of verses, 5, 14, for the whole law, the entire Old Testament, all the law, and Jesus said, and the prophets. 5, 14 of Galatians, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as what? Yourself. But, 5, 15, and listen, If you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not, what, consumed by one another. Listen, I'm not aware of anything in our flock. I'm not aware of any distance with us, and and I'm sure that there's some things between people. But I just want you to know I love this flock so much, and our elder team loves this flock so much. And we'll look next week at the confession of the unity of the church with the seven ones. But here's the call, walk worthy. Here's the character of a worthy walk. And here's these five graces. And the final one, we'll finish for next week, okay? We'll finish eager and I'll put that with the seven ones.